Please turn your Bibles to John chapter 5. We just finished up a series in uh, the book of Genesis, from Genesis 12 to 25, verse 18, called The Faithfulness of God in the Life of Abraham. And we've been trekking through, kind of in sequential fashion, the book of Genesis and 1 Corinthians and the Gospel of John. And so we begin back in the Gospel of John today. We're going to go through chapters 5 through 12 in this series. We're titling it, Honor the Son. In the first four chapters of the Gospel of John, we were introduced to Jesus Christ. As John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb who has come to take away the sin of the world. And in those first four chapters, in this, in this Gospel of John, Jesus was baptized. We saw him revealed initially as the Messiah. Uh, Jesus called his disciples. He performed uh, his first recorded miracle. Jesus cleansed the temple of its hypocrisy and the manipulation of religion for their selfish gain. And Jesus taught a Jewish Pharisee, Nicodemus, a most respected member of society. And Jesus also taught a Samaritan woman, a least respected member of society. And both of them of the same thing, their need to be born again, to be born of above, from above, from God. Uh, by the way, do you remember which one of those two, Nicodemus the Samaritan woman, believed and then boldly shared their faith in Christ with others? Who was that? The Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman. And then finally, at the end of chapter 4, we saw Jesus' first recorded healing. Uh, the healing of the official's son, which he did remotely, by the way, if you remember. He, he said, your son is healed. He simply spoke it. And at that instant... That boy was physically healed. In all of these accounts, different people were being introduced to the Lamb of God. The Jews were being introduced and the Gentiles. The powerful, the highly esteemed, and the weak. And they, and of course we, the readers of this gospel, have been shown who Jesus is. He's a miracle worker. He knows the hearts and minds of people. He is an all-wise, perfect teacher. He's the Savior. He is God the Son. And so it would seem that, having gathered all of this information, knowing what we know, uh, what we've learned about Jesus, that he should be honored. It only seems right that the Son of God would be honored John 5.23 says this, that all may honor the Son as they honor the Father. Jesus is worthy of all honor and glory and praise. And for crying out loud, we're reading this in the Bible, in one of the Gospels. So surely we would we'd find everyone honoring the Son in the Bible, right? Uh, but no. What we're going to find uh, most often quite often in the Gospel of John, in chapters 5 through 12, is that people were often more prone to not honor the Son. We're going to find that Jesus was most frequently rejected, even while people were seemingly singing his praises. And so it will be very important for us to ask, why, when we see that happening? Why? Why that is, as we see it happening in these chapters, as we continue to learn from the Scripture and seek to grow in our walk with Christ. And remember, the Apostle John, the writer of this Gospel, shared 
uh, with us that this book, the Gospel of John, was written so that we could believe. So that we would believe. And that by believing, we would have eternal life. And so if you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, this passage was written for you. This whole book was written for you. For your salvation, for your faith. And may God bless the reading and the study of his word today and for the next couple of months as we work verse by verse and passage by passage through this portion of the Gospel of John. So we are in John chapter 5 today and ready to start here in verse 1. It says, After this, after this there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Uh, even though Jesus had come from the north, from Cana in Galilee, uh, it'll always say that Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Okay, everybody goes up to Jerusalem, regardless of where they came from. And the reason is simply because of the elevation of the city. It's the elevation. Uh, when someone says that they're going to Ohio, they're going to say they're going down to Ohio from here, right? Because we think of directional on a map kind of stuff. They're going down south to Ohio. But in this culture, in this time, in this uh, this geographical region, they are going to say we're going up because of, evol- uh, of elevation, not evolution, elevation. They're going up to Jerusalem. So up to Jerusalem we go. Let's see what happens. Verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, which was on the northeast side of the city, by the temple, by the way, and the proximity of the temple is going to be very important. There was there by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Sounds fancy, doesn't it? Now, this beautiful pool inside the city walls near the magnificent temple is believed to have been fed by a natural spring. It was surrounded by these colonnades, these multi-pillared roofed areas where people could get out of the rain or out of the sun during the hottest time of day. Super nice, right? So all the social elites ought to hang out here, we would think. Super nice place like this. But it says in verse 3, in these, in these colonnades lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So then the natural question for us is, why? Why do all of these people stay by this super nice pool? What's that? What's going on here? Why are all these people gathered here at this pool together? And as it, as it turns out, uh, someone, and then others followed them, had the same question as, as they were reading through God, uh, John chapter 5. Same question. Which brings up another question. Where is verse 4? If you look at your Bible, some of you are going to have verse 3, period, verse 5. You see that? Now would be a really mean time to start doing a sword drill. There'll be some people who are disadvantaged if we had a candy bar available or something for the winter. But if you look in your Bibles, if you have ESV, uh, which is what I'm using, maybe you have an NIV or some other translation. Okay, but that's good. There might be a footnote or something like that to tell you what happened to verse 4. Okay? In the King James Version, the translation says this. This is, this is what has historically been dubbed John 5, 4. It says this. For an angel went down... At a certain time, a certain season into the pool, and troubled the water, stirred it up. Okay, think like a jacuzzi tub and the bubbles are coming up or something. Troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole 
of whatsoever disease he had. Okay, does that make sense? So why are all of these handicapped people sitting around this pool under these colonnades? Because they believed that if the water started to stir, first one in is healed. And so they're, wa- they're waiting and they're watching. And so that's the first question, this, this belief, this urban legend, if you will, that, that they're waiting for, that they're hoping for this miraculous healing. But if you think about it, how sad is that? How long would these people sit by this pool, eagerly watching the water, to no avail? Day after day after day. And what if some person came with a malady in their upper body, uh, like only their arm was deformed or something like that? Did the paraplegics, the ones whose legs weren't working, did they moan oh, with grief at their poor fortune that day? Boy, if the water stirs today, I'll never get in before that guy. He wins today. How sad is that? And what if the spring brought in that fresh water and it stirred up the water and people saw it and like, oh, you hear the gasp and you were looking away at the moment and you missed it and the first person jumps into the water and they come out and they're not healed. And then, and then what do you say? Maybe, maybe I didn't get in fast enough. Maybe, maybe this day something was wrong. Maybe I stepped in the wrong way. Maybe somebody else jumped in at the same time. It's his fault. Does that make sense? How sad would this be day after day after day for these people? Now, to answer the second question we have about verse 4, the absence of this verse 4, while it might sound scary at first and make you worry about Bible translations, which people sometimes are prone to do, it should actually encourage you. The reason should actually encourage you. Okay, remember, first, the scriptures were not originally written with chapter headings and verses marked. These helpful tools were added way later to help us find passages quickly, for the purpose of sword drills, I'm sure. And some argue, some argue, uh, that the, the verse markings and the chapter markings have actually helped us to take verses out of context and use them for reasons they were not originally intended to mean. Does that make sense? But these chapter headings and these verse markings are newer than they are older for us. Uh, Secondly, it's helpful to know that Scripture was written and copied by hand. They didn't have computers. There were no printers. Even the Gutenberg Press wasn't available until the 1400s. And so people were copying the Scriptures and everything else by hand. And how many of you like to write notes or underline verses in your Bible? People like to do that. They'll write notes along the side there. How many of you, if you write a note in your Bible, write it close to the verse that you know that note's referring to? To make sure it's close by there and you see it as you read through that passage. It's a natural thing to do. Now imagine those notes that you've written are not written next to typed words, but next to written words. You see where this is going a little bit here? And then imagine that someone copies your copy of the Bible by hand because that's the only way you can get a copy and likes your note a lot because it explains the why question from verse 3. And they write the note that you wrote also very close, if not within the original text. They copy that down too. And then the guy that copies the copy from your copy 
just sees the writing altogether and writes it in there altogether. And copies are made of those copies, and copies are made of those copies, and so on down the line we go. Okay? And voila, a bonus verse. Or not. So, so some translation teams have chosen to leave it there. Other translation teams have chosen to remove it to try to stay as close as they can to the original. And now here's the amazing thing. Here's the amazing thing. Because of the vast, amazing number of copies that we have with all those manuscripts, we know with certainty every time something like that happened. There isn't a mystery like, oh, we don't know how much of this is just commentary and how much of it is actually original. We have so many copies of the manuscripts, we know exactly when that happened, and they can see it over time. So that's one amazing thing. Um, secondly, it's incredibly rare. It's incredibly rare. There are only a few instances where we see that something like this has happened. And thirdly, every single time people who study through the manuscripts find an instance like this, it has nothing to do with doctrine Nothing to do with the gospel, nothing to do with the deity of Christ, nothing to do with any of the fundamentals of the faith. It never has any bearing on those things. So because of those three things, we can have total and utter confidence that the word of God that you have in your lap today is the word of God. Amen? That's pretty important for us to know, and we can have incredible confidence in that truth. And so you know, we have, last time I checked, Okay, this is just because it gives us good assurance and encouragement. We have 5,686 manuscripts of the New Testament dating back to the 2nd and 3rd century, the 100s and 200s AD. And John finished writing Revelation in the 90s. Within 100, 200 years, 5,686 manuscripts. But wait, there's more. We have approximately 9,000 major early translations from the Koine Greek to other languages spoken in that area. 9,000 of those. We have, get this, 36,289 quotations from 2nd and 3rd century church leaders. They were, they were writing commentaries. If you've read a commentary or seen a commentary before, before the author of that commentary tells you their comments about the passage, they write out the passage. And from those commentaries that were in that same early period, we have all but 11 verses of the New Testament copied again. All but 11 verses, most of them from 2nd and 3rd John. We have the New Testament. We know we have it. And just for comparison, historical books that time, uh, Homer's the Iliad, we have 643. Okay, 5,686, 9,000 plus 36,289 compared to 643. Uh, Julius Caesar's Gaelic Wars, never questioned historically. We have 10 copies. 10. And they date 1,000 years after it was originally written. Nobody questions that. Why? Think about this now. Do any historians question the validity of books like that? No. Why would super-intelligent people deny something that seems so historically accurate and obvious? And I have to wonder if it's just because they want to. Because they want to. Because the Iliad and the Gaelic Wars and other books like that don't tell us that there is a God who is Lord, that Jesus rose from the dead, 
These books don't tell us to repent. They don't tell us to honor the Son. Uh, This is actually not too much different than the response that we're going to see now as we finish this passage today. This desire. So, back to John 5, verse 5. One man was there at this pool at Bethesda who had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, so we know there's something wrong with his legs, Jesus knew that he had already been there a long time because he's God. He said to him, Jesus says to this man, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? What kind of question is that? Right? And I think, what in the world? It makes me, as I was studying this, it kind of made me think of, you go to a place to go get your hair cut, you go to a Bullrichs or a Fiesta or wherever you go get your hair cut, you walk in the door, and the person comes to the counter to the computer and says, what could we do for you today? And I think, I was thinking maybe a haircut, right? Because that's where we are right now. They could mess with their mind if you walk in there just buy a lip balm or something and walk out the door or whatever. Of course, this guy is at the Pool of Bethesda with this urban legend that tells them all, go jump in that water when it stirs up and you'll be healed. And Jesus asked this question, do you want to be healed? But we know this, Jesus doesn't waste questions. And there's something more important going on here that this man needs to see. Maybe, maybe Jesus was emphasizing something besides his physical healing. Maybe we should hear it less like, do you want to be healed? And more like, do you want to be healed? Verse 7 says this, The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water stirred up. He's not only hopeless in his physical abilities, he's hopeless in his abilities just to get into the water in the first place, and yet there he remains. I have no one to put me into the pool when the water stirred up, and, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. So the man says, sure, I'd love to be healed. And then he takes a stab at recruiting this, this stranger to him, Jesus, trying to recruit Jesus to wait with him and, and carry him to the pool when the water stirs. But Jesus does him far better. Jesus said to him, get up, which is cruel if he's not going to do something. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And when? At once, the man was healed. As he sat there on his straw mat and looked down at his legs, instantly, whatever was wrong with them before wasn't wrong with them anymore. They looked whole. They felt whole. He was healed. And it says he took up his bed. He got up. He took up his bed and walked. To which we might say, hallelujah. But oh wait. That day was the Sabbath. Foreshadowing. Okay, trouble is ahead. Like next passage, next week ahead. But trouble is ahead. Uh, Remember, the Jews had written some bonus rules about the Sabbath. Things that were never intended by God, but uh, but that they had added to make sure that nobody broke the actual commandment. They built fences around the actual commandments. And since they liked those bonus barriers so much, they actually enforced them as law. Conflict is coming. Verse 10, So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. And by the way, this, this bed was not like 
box springs and a headboard, and he's not carrying that around on his back, okay? This is like a straw mat, maybe a blanket on there or something, okay? They said, you are taking up your bed. You've broken the Sabbath. He was grabbing these things and going home. He wasn't violating the law. He was violating their law. But in response to this accusation, verse 11, he answered them, "Uh, the man who healed me, the man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Okay, and they asked him, who is the man who said to you, okay, now stop. What should the Jews have asked right here? How about, who is the man who said to you, do you want to be healed? Get up. That would have been a great question to ask, right? Uh, How about a little celebration for this newly mobile gentleman and a little wonder and amazement that there's someone who is healing handicapped people who've been invalid for 38 years wandering around the city. At least a, wow, would have been amazing, right? But no. The Jews instead show that they are more concerned with their amplified version of the law. They had found their Savior. Uh, There's no use in looking for a real one. For the real one. So instead they ask, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? And now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. That's an amazing point, by the way. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Jesus didn't stick around and ask for an offering. Jesus didn't stay and heal the rest of the people there at the pool. There was not one man at the pool. There were several invalid people in the pool. And that's a big deal, isn't it? If their physical healing was that important, wouldn't a holy God finish the job? So why did Jesus retreat before things got crazy at the pool? Why did Jesus value ministry to this individual and not the big crowd? Verse 14 is going to help us to answer these questions. Verse 14, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See... See, you're well. Sin no more. That nothing worse may happen to you. What was the man supposed to see? That his legs worked? Or were his functioning legs supposed to help him see something else? Who was this man who healed him? Jesus is saying, do you see that I am the Christ? I am the promised Savior, the Messiah. I am the Lord. What kind of healing was Jesus asking about in the first place? Probably the kind that follows with a go and sin no more. That kind. And how do we know that? How can we know that? Well, because Jesus makes it very clear that there's something worse than being handicapped. There's something worse than being handicapped. And that that something worse is the consequence of sin. And it's death and hell. So Jesus initially gives the man physical healing and says, get up. And then Jesus offers the man 
spiritual healing and says, see. Do you want to be healed? Do you want your spiritual blindness to be removed? Do you want to be healed? Do you understand this question now? And listen, I'm asking you, if you've been wandering, if you've been staying away from Christ, if you here today have been rejecting Him, going your own way, holding on to your sin, you might say, I'm not rejecting Jesus, I'm just doing my own thing for now. When I'm ready. If that's you, you're rejecting Him. You might not want to say you are, but if you want to do your own thing, and if Jesus isn't the Lord of your life, you've rejected Him. Is He my Lord or not? That sounds like a rough question, but it is a, a question that will give life to you if you'll hear it and if you'll respond honestly. Do you want to be healed? Sadly, we now see in this passage this walking man's response. And it's not great. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And, of course, all the rest pick up his mat and walk around and such. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. He was messing with their Savior their, their modified religion themselves. So, uh, did the man want to be healed? And the answer we could deduce from this passage is no. He didn't want holiness. He, he didn't want repentance. He didn't want Jesus. He didn't want his Messiah. He wanted legs that worked. He wanted respect from important people. Not this Jesus guy who couldn't possibly be acceptable if the Pharisees rejected him. He wanted to be honored. He wanted to be honored, not to honor the Son. And so he says to the Pharisees, you want to know who told me to pick up my bed? You want to know who this this crazy guy is? I can tell you. I know. I'm with you guys. That makes me important, right? Do you want to be healed from this blindness? That's blindness. Do you see that? That motivation, that hope, that goal, that desire, that's blindness. Do we want to be healed? It's a hopeless endeavor. It's an empty pursuit. And Jesus told this man it's a path towards death. Now, let's, let's think for a second. What was preventing the man from seeing his greater need? What was his perspective? I'm going to ask, well, what's, what's his biggest need? And he might say, oh, it's my legs. But was it? What was his biggest desire? To walk or respect? What was his biggest challenge? What was his biggest challenge? Well, for sure, uh, we could say from his perspective, it was his legs not working. Where did honor belong? Where did honor belong in his heart? And he may have placed that honor on the religious leaders, but what did his actions say? 
Whose honor was he clamoring for? Probably his own. Probably his own. And then Jesus fixed his legs. And everything was great. But it wasn't. And Jesus, his example, he disappeared in the midst of that crippled crowd. Jesus wasn't enticed by that prospect of a captive captive audience. Jesus told the man that he was healed for holiness. The healing wasn't the end in and of itself. He was healed for something bigger, for holiness. To point him to his greatest need. And Jesus said something worse could happen. All the things the man was hoping for, ultimately, pretty worthless. Now, where were the Pharisees? What were they most occupied with? Let's run them through these, this grid, these questions. What was their biggest need? Well, holiness, surely they would say. And what was their greatest desire? For everyone to do what they said. Because, because they, the religious leaders, they were the stuff. They had their act together. They knew all the rules, even the ones they had written themselves. And what was their biggest challenge? People who won't obey them. Ministry would be great if it wasn't for all the people. You ever hear anybody say that before? That sounds like a Pharisee. There is no ministry without people. Where did the honor belong? In the Pharisees' hearts? Jesus said this to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. They preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear. They lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others themselves being blind. I added that part with themselves being blind, just to be clear. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. A phylactery was literally a box that they tied to their foreheads and put a bunch of verses written on paper in the boxes. Because the word of God in the Old Testament and the Pentateuch said in the law, keep these words before your head day and night. Okay? Probably would take that to mean like this. And like what you're doing. But they didn't. They said, okay. Whoop. And my phylactery is bigger than yours. Therefore, I am more spiritual. And that sounds ridiculous. And it's absolutely what they did. And it's why they did. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. My fringes are longer than your fringes. I'm more holy than you are. And they love the place of honor at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. So who were the Jews, church? Who were the Jewish religious leaders seeking, desiring to be honored? Themselves. Do we see this human nature carrying on and on and on about? Let's be honest with ourselves for a second. Who do I want to be honored most when left to my own devices? Yes. Myself. And I'll let you speak for you, okay? But if we're being honest, that's where we are. We have to be honest and ask ourselves, what is my biggest need? Uh, There's the I'm at church answer, right? And then maybe there's something that's actually ruling your life right now. You're here today, praise God. But Monday through Saturday, something else has your heart and your attention, your focus. What are your actions, your thoughts, your anxieties? What are they revealing to you about what you think you need the most right now? What's my greatest desire? What are my goals? 
What am I shooting for the most? What's motivating me to do even the good things that I do? What is my biggest challenge? What is keeping me from getting what I want? And Christians, we have to ask ourselves this. We can't skip this. Have I been willing to sin in order to get what I want? To overcome this challenge? This barrier that's been keeping me from getting what I want? If I'm willing to sin in order to get it, then this has become for me idolatry. God's rules no longer apply because this has my heart more than he does. And for that, we need to repent. And if I've run this course, and I think it's safe to say that we all have, if not now, it's happened in the past, and and we need to be on guard that it might not happen again. But if we've been here in this wrong thinking, in this sin, the final question is, who do I want to receive this honor? Whenever we decide to sin, the truth is there has been an exchange of glory. What did Satan say? I will be like the Most High God. This exchange occurs. And that's why we sin. We love that. And we love that honor. So now what is true? What is true? Praise God for the Word of God. We know what is true. What is my biggest need? Salvation. Through Jesus Christ. True holiness. Praise God imputed to us. Not something that we have come to do ourselves because we wouldn't be able to. We would be hopeless without him. Because what is my biggest challenge? Me. (laughs) My biggest challenge in my life is me. It's not you. It's not my family. It's not anybody else. It's me. You know why? Because there's sin in my life, in my heart. We all have sin. We are our greatest problem and our greatest challenge. And if you're here today, you've seen this to be true in your life, in your heart. Uh, Know that Jesus Christ didn't just go around healing physically sick people. Amen? He went about healing spiritually dead people. Spiritually dead, lost sinners like me and like you. Because he gave himself for us. Jesus Christ dying on the cross taking the penalty of our sin upon himself, taking the wrath of God that I deserve upon himself. He was buried and he rose again, proving that he is the perfect sacrifice, the perfect substitute. And today I ask you, if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, do you want to be healed? If the answer is yes, praise God. Praise God. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Done. And as I pray today, you can do that. I'm about to pray. And while I'm praying, you can pray and ask Christ to be your Savior, to be your Lord. Tell him that you believe. Ask him to forgive you, and he will. And surrender to Christ and then be fully and forever healed. Given eternal life, having become a child of God, growing in godliness by his grace and honoring the Son. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your great and glorious grace.
Thank you for Jesus Christ. God, we thank you, all of us here today who are believers, who've repented, who've been forgiven, who are your children. God, thank you for giving us eyes and a heart, a desire to be healed. And God, thank you for being faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. And God, help us to continue to be growing, to see where the desires of our heart are not in accord with, with the desires of yours, as revealed to us in the truth of, the God, of God's word, of your word. God, help us to, to bring honor and glory to your name in our lives as we continue to become more like him by your grace. And Lord, I pray if there would be somebody here today who, who maybe for a long time has been religious but blind to their need, God, heal them today. I pray that that person, those people, would put their faith and trust in Christ and be born again. And we pray this all in the great name of Jesus Christ for his honor, glory, and praise. Amen.